Remembering is a strange thing. We have both, I think, as humans, a peculiar ability to remember and a disturbing propensity to forget. You know what I mean. You and I remember the most mundane trivia about life, but we forget some of the most substantial things. I can remember things that my coaches used to tell me all the time. Pay attention to details. Or this, nothing good happens after midnight. Stay in. Or they'd always say, Ripley, you're not tall enough. I'd say, Coach, tell me something that I can help or something I can do about. Or this, one of our coaches, <laughs> he'd always say, and you've got to watch me while I say this, he'd always say, remember, school first, football second. Say, so you hear me say it, school first, football second. These kind of things stick in you and I's minds. Which of us hasn't been in a situation, though, when we've strolled into a room only to stand there desperately thumbing through the files in our brain trying to remember how we got there in the first place or what we're doing there? This forgetting, this dilemma, is really the whole premise, whole purpose and stress of any exam and of any embarrassment when we forget a birthday or a significant date. I was reading, just out of curiosity, and we're not really sure why the human brain forgets. I read a number of articles. Anything has been proposed from a defense mechanism against insanity to simple interference of competing thoughts. Neurology might be at a loss, but let me let you in on a little secret. It has something to do with the fall. The fall affected our brains. In fact, Adam and Eve didn't forget God's command, but their disobedience, their violation of it did make it so you and I have an awful hard time remembering. The effects of the fall reach far into our ability to remember names and faces, even the quadratic formula. If you're like me, you need to forget sometimes things like the circumference of a circle just to remember other things. We might call it the transience of memory. Memory is an amazing thing on one hand, but an admittedly fragile thing on the other hand. It's often said that a person is the sum of their memories. But if you and I are to be honest, some of our sums don't sum up to much of a person. We forget where our car is parked or exactly what toy it was that our kid wanted or asked for. There's a reason Amazon has a save for later option and I don't think we have to worry about post-it notes going out of danger or going out of business anytime soon. In fact, I have an app on my phone just to remind me what to do. That's my to-do list and a calendar app to remind me when to do it. We forget everything. Most of this really though is pretty harmless, if not frustrating or annoying. But listen, there's a spiritual forgetfulness that is less than comical. And God knows that. Kevin DeYoung said this, The Bible is about a faithful God who doesn't forget and a a forgetful people or a stubborn people who do. The Bible is about a faithful God who doesn't forget and a stubborn people who do. That's why he had Peter labor to warn against it, to prohibit it, to stir up his people by way of reminder. I want you to turn with me all the way to Second Peter, towards the end of the New Testament, if you're not already there, towards the epistle of Second Peter, right after First Peter, which is right after James. 
Find the epistle of Second Peter. I want to look with you in chapter 1, verse 1. Follow along as I read all the way to verse 15. Simon Peter, a bondservant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these... He has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now for this very reason, also applying all diligence in your faith, apply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness." And in your godliness, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, love. For these qualities are yours. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you, For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth, which is present with you. I consider it right as long as I am in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder knowing that the laying aside of this earthly dwelling, of my earthly dwelling, is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I also will be diligent that at any time after my departure you will be able to call these things to mind. Let's pause for prayer. Lord, we want to ask this evening that you would reveal your glory through the preaching of your word. Make the word live to us, O Lord, move in our hearts and in our midst, Convict us, stir us, encourage us. Help us to move towards Christ-likeness this evening. For your glory, amen. Well, if spiritual growth of the elect is the focus in verses 3 through 11, we have a running start to understand what Peter said or meant in our text of consideration, verse 12 through 15. Verse 12, look at that. He says, Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. Listen, crucial to understanding what this passage means is this. Reminders must have substance. Reminders must have substance. It's kind of like encouragement. I remember when I was in Australia, Brisbane, Australia on a campus, and I was working to share the gospel kind of day in and day out, and it was tiring work, and we had to climb these long stairs (laughs) to get up to campus. And I'm not exaggerating when I say that they were long. I lost count. But some of us were about two-thirds the way up. There were some that were behind. There were some at the very top. And I remember one of our friends, particularly charismatic personality from the bottom, said, Be encouraged, saints! And one of the more grumpy members of our group at the top said, be encouraged about what? You can't just tell me to be encouraged. You've got to tell me about what? 
That stuck with me for some reason because I remembered encouragement needs substance. Remembering needs substance. Peter's reminder here contains substance. He's ready, eager. He's unpoised to remind us of these things. What things? Well, verse 5 through 7 at least, it says here in verse 5, Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your face, supply moral excellence. In your moral excellence, knowledge. And in your knowledge, self-control. In your self-control, perseverance. In your perseverance, godliness. In your godliness, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, love. Seven things here. At least these seven things be reminded of. These are both brought about by God. Verse 3 says we become partakers of his divine nature. And verse 5 says to the one who applies himself in all diligence and in his face. So it's God working with us to bring about these fruits. We are to remember both the blessedness of authentic, of authentic salvation and the assurance that that salvation gives us. That's what verse 9 through 11 talks about, assurance. All these surround Peter's theme in these very early verses of holy living or spiritual growth. Still, I think we'd be wrong to limit these things to only what he said in the first 11 verses. Look at over chapter 3 with me. Turn over to chapter 3, look at verse 1. Peter's already written a letter. And at the present, reading some of Paul's letters, we see that at the end of the book. But in verse 1, chapter 3, says, Now this is the second letter I am writing you, beloved, in both of them, I'm stirring you up or stirring your sincere mind. What's it say? By way of reminder. Peter already was, as we say, preaching to the choir. These people knew these things, these qualities. They'd been established. They had the faith of the same kind or of equal standing, verse 1. But more than just knowing these truths, they were established in them, grounded in them, founded in them. These saints weren't just drinking milk. Now think for a second how easy it is just to kind of nod your head when you already know something. Like, uh-huh, but you're not really listening because you kind of already know it. They're just talking. You've already heard it. That's what those of us who've been through more than a sermon or two begin to do. Too easily. We can nod our heads and say, uh-huh, but we must not. We must not do this. No, we need reminders. Grace, our body, it's not in immediate danger of becoming unlearned. But it's my concern in our learning that we not become lethargic, sleepy, or insensitive, or forgetful. It's too easy for you and I to forget these truths that we've become so fortunate to hear. We might forget the necessity of holiness, of godly living. Second Peter and Jude are sometimes called the dark corner of the New Testament because they're abundant and appropriate railings against false, false teachers. Most of Second Peter talks about false teachers and Peter warns against them. These Christians weren't babes in Christ like those in Corinth, but they were in danger, listen, of false doctrine and of false teachers. So Peter starts to combat that false teaching by, watch this, enforcing truth, reminding them of truth. He says, I'm going to remind you because you've heard them, because you already know them. You're built up and established in them. Uh, New Testament authors echo this kind of language throughout Scripture. Philippians 3, 1, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord, Paul says, to write to you these same things. It's no trouble to me. It's a safeguard for you. 
Second Thessalonians 2 Thessalonians 2.5 do, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? Jude 1.5 Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. Finally, 1 John 2.21 John says, I write to you not because you don't know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is established or no lies of the truth. If we're going to be honest, the fundamental truths of Christianity are not all that complicated. Still, we need to be at war against their simplicity, detracting from us being bored with them. We need to not only know them, but to rehearse them and to be reminded of them. Consider Jesus, who sometimes sought the same message to a different group of people or only slightly adapted it. Consider Deuteronomy, the second giving of the law. Consider that more than 10% of the New Testament is made up of citations or direct allusions to the Old Testament. There's a lot of repetition in the Bible. Why? Because we're stubborn and forgetful people and we need reminders. Contrary to the beliefs of some, says John MacArthur, there is no such thing as brand new spiritual truth. Only a clearer understanding of the timeless truths in God's word. It's not that you and I can't discover anything new. It's that there's no new revelation. God has given us what we need and we need to be reminded of it. Peter's probably about 70 years old by the time he's writing this. Do you think Peter was uncovering a lot of new doctrine? No, probably not. He was being encouraged. He was being upheld. He was being exhorted towards remembering what he already knew, what he was already established in. Turn back and look at verse 13 in our text. It says this, I consider it right as long as I'm in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder. Earthly, earthly dwelling here is the word for tent. Peter says he's not going to be camping in it much longer. I don't mean, and Peter doesn't mean to belittle the sobriety and the seriousness of death, not for a moment. But there is a reason that New Testament authors can and do talk about death in such candid terms. It's because they have no guilt in life, no fear in death. Peter says it's like a changing of the clothes a packing up of the earthly tent and the soul, and it's going straight to be with God. Same language that you might remember Paul uses in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Let me read you verse 1. He says, For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house made not with hands, eternal in the heavens. Verse 4, For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan being burdened because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed in order that we, what is mortal might become swallowed up by what is life. No, friends, Christians do not mourn as those who have no hope. We groan not over death, but over being remaining in these mortal bodies, staying here on earth. We want to be clothed with heavenly garments, with a new body. And knowing that death is imminent, but not having revelation on whether that's going to be tomorrow or years away still, Peter says, as long as I'm in this body, as long as I'm in this tent, I'm going to stir you up 
by way of reminder. Stir up is a pretty uncommon word in the New Testament. It's used, however, in Mark 4.39. You might remember where Jesus is asleep on the boat and the disciples try to wake him up. They're stirring him up. But it's not used physically here. It's used, or it's not used, uh, yeah, physically here. It's used figuratively, not to arouse from physical sleep, but to stir up mental fortitude or spiritual thirst. It means to arouse the mind, to stir up, to render active the soul. I can still hear an old preacher that I used to listen to in college, Ian Paisley, say, wake it up, you sleepy Christians. He would always say that (laughs) in some of his sermons. But that's not quite the idea here. It's not that kind of stirring up. It's not the same word that's used in Hebrews 10. I think it's verse 23 that I taught on last time. That word meant to stir up, to stimulate, to provoke to excite or to call into action. You remember it's where we got our English word paroxysm, a sudden attack or an onset, kind of a violent meaning, an irritableness or an exasperation. Not the same idea. Instead, what we have here is perhaps a less violent, a less irritable idea, but a nonetheless steady, active, urgent stirring. Wake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Stirred up. Peter isn't concerned about defection from ministry. He's not talking here about apostasy from the faith, but he is talking about a lack of fruitfulness, a fallenness in character or in holy living. And this, friends, listen, is deceptively dangerous. If we don't keep a close watch on our mind we will forget. If we don't keep a close watch on our soul, it will slumber. We need regular stirring of it. New Testament authors warn of this in phrases like Romans 13.11, that the hour has come, that hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. 1 Thessalonians 5.6, so let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Christian, listen, if you're slumbering tonight, if you're sleeping spiritually, listen carefully and be reminded of the word of life. Use it to stir and to shake up your soul from slumber to sobriety, from laziness or from lassitude to life, to liveliness, to fruitfulness, even great fruitfulness. Spiritual growth is important, so important, and to lack it, Verse 5 through 11 tells us is to lack at least assurance of your faith, if not real evidence of salvation. Well, Peter, now as I mentioned, about 70, knew that his time was coming soon. That's why he says in verse 14, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. It wouldn't be long now. Jesus had made clear not just that Peter would die, but how he would die. During Peter's restoration in John 21, you remember Jesus asked him three times, Peter, do you love me? Final time, Jesus says, uh, Peter says, you know that I love you. And Jesus says to him, then Peter, feed or tend my sheep. And then after that, he says this, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself. You walked wherever you wished, but when you grew old, you will stretch it, or when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you. They'll bring you to where you do not wish to go. 
in John's commentary. And now he said this, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Let me read to you or quote to you one commentator on this passage whom I think you will find helpful. He goes by the name of Dr. Brian Hughes. We know him better as pastor. He says this. This was a prophecy that Jesus, uh, this was a prophecy by Jesus that one day Peter would die by crucifixion. We often put Peter down and make fun of him, but I wonder if we realize the internal fortitude that Jesus had built into this man's life. I mean, if Jesus told me that one day I would be crucified for him, I would probably worry about it every day. He says I would probably die of apoplexy before it happened. Every day I would wonder if this day was the day. Every time I saw someone carrying a wooden pole, I would think, this is it. But Jesus knew Peter was strong enough to handle such a startling revelation. End quote. Humorous, but I think we can relate. Peter knew that his time was coming. John thirteen thirty six, Simon Peter says to Jesus, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me later. That's exactly the idea in verse 15. In his departure, after Peter's departure, he longs for, he desires one thing, that you will call these things to mind, that you'll have a remembrance of these things. Verse 15, and I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. The word for departure is exodus. It speaks of going from one place to another place. It's another, again, a frank speaking, an appropriate way to refer to Christian death. If 2 Timothy is Paul's swan song before his death, then 2 Peter, this letter is Peter's. His time was near. It reminds me a little bit of growing up on the ranch during calving season. We would have these calves, and most of them would make it, but every once in a while we'd have one that didn't. And often, before it would die, it would let out this ominous ball. It was as if it knew that it was going to die, and it would wail until finally it would stop. It was a terrible thing. It was like it knew it was coming, and it was telling you. It's not so different from what I understand many go through in the world as they approach death, a lament for death, a lament about their life. But listen, not so for Peter. Not so for the Christian. Peter's legacy statement here is anything but frantic lament. It's not focused on Peter, it's focused on his readers, that they would remember his teaching. One of my coaches would always ask as we were ready to run out of the tunnel before games, he'd say this, do you want to be long remembered or soon forgotten? He's trying to stir up in us a lust for glory. I mean, a jersey to be retired or like they're doing nowadays, something less glamorous, your picture on a porta potty or something like that. (laughs) Called pass. Peter's not concerned that he be long remembered. He's more concerned that his name would be soon forgotten, but his message, which is Christ crucified, would be long remembered, never forgotten. His care is not over his impending crucifixion at the hands of Nero, the Roman emperor, who would just butcher Christians in subhuman ways. His concern is over his people. I suppose I have a certain love for Peter 
because his weaknesses are, are certainly my weaknesses. He's the disciple we often say with the foot-shaped mouth. Peter was zealous. I hope we will forgive the sins of his youth for the true zeal and maturity we've tasted in this letter tonight. Peter was zealous. And all his letters breathed an air of urgency, but the flavor in this text is a warmth. It's earnest and winsome. It's steady and pastoral. It's the staring of death in the face with joy that any human, Christian or unbeliever, desires. It's that zeal that burns bright and steady, even as he probably writes from a dimly lit jail cell. Zeal, John Newton wrote in 1799, is that pure and heavenly flame, the fire of love supplies, while that which often bears the name is self in disguise. True zeal is merciful and mild, can pity and forbear. The false is headstrong, fierce and wild, and breathes revenge and war. While zeal for truth the Christian warms, he knows the worth of peace. But self contends for names and forms. It's party to increase. Peter didn't care if his name was long remembered. I shudder to think of the disgust that Peter would have had had he known that something that bears the name church would use his name to defend its papacy. No. He wanted Christ remembered. He wanted to stir his people up by way of reminder to live in holiness, to walk in faithfulness. He wanted Christ remembered. He knew that remembering combats doubts of salvation, fear of death, and it brings about fruitfulness, faithfulness, discernment, even in the face of false teachers. So next time, Christian, that you and I walk into the kitchen and we forget why we're there, Forgive yourself, but did not be so quick to forgive spiritual forgetfulness. There's a much more poisonous kind of forgetfulness. The one our text says leads to blindness, to nearsightedness, to apathy, to doubt. Make your calling and election sure. Instead of doubting, Instead of wavering, instead of forgetting, instead press on in true doctrine, in holy living to the praise of his name. Let us this evening look at God's word. Let us look at these things with freshness rather than familiarity. As it is often said, familiarity breeds contempt. We must guard against it. Let us regularly in Sunday gatherings like this in your own personal time, alone, by yourself with the Lord, be stirred up by way of reminder in remembering Christ's glorious work on our behalf. Always remember to call these things to mind. Peter's reminder now sits in your lap in black and white, beckoning you, do not forget. Be stirred up both tonight and forever by way of reminder. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that Peter recorded it so faithfully long ago that he didn't bring this about by his own private interpretation, but that you spoke through him. 
that you brought about this reminder because you know our own forgetfulness. So quick, so easy to forget, Lord. Prevent it. Bring about steadiness. Bring about remembrance. Stir us up this evening and every day by way of reminder. Public gatherings, private time alone, I beg that you'd prevent any in this room, in this church, in this body from spiritual apathy, from spiritual forgetfulness. And Lord, we know those times will come. And so when they do, use your people, use your spirit, use your word to stir us up by way of reminder. Lord, help us to hide your word in our heart that we might not sin against you. We ask this to the praise of your name. For the sake of your glory, amen.